welcome to This Week in Ringer Sports. I am Liz Kelly bringing you the highlights from the Ringer Podcast Network. As part of our year in review package, we have our 2017 Sports Awards, which includes Most Improved Player, Best Costume Design, and Best True to Yourself Performance. You can check it all out on TheRinger.com. First up, we have some NFL news. So the Philadelphia Eagles clinched the NFC East in Week 14, but at the expense of their franchise QB, Carson Wentz. On the NFL show, Robert Mays and Kevin Clark talk about the impact of that injury on the Eagles' postseason run in our first clip of the week. Does this sink Philly Super Bowl chances in your mind? Well, I mean, there's two ways to look at it. Number one, I was, you know, I was joking, obviously, but the context of the 2017 season. In a normal year, it does. Uh, there was a statistic the NFL put out um, since 1991, 13 quarterbacks have started a game in the playoffs with three or fewer starts that season. Yeah. Okay. I saw that. Their combined record, two and 12. And Frank Reich has both those wins, which is amazing. <laughs> the, obviously, if you don't know, Frank Reich is the offensive coordinator of the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah. So that all comes full circle. I still am. I, I'm worried about this. It, do you think me, that Doug Peterson is jealous of Frank Reich? Got to do that because he was just he was also a longtime backup guy. Yeah, what, what sort of a lifetime backup politics exists in the Eagles' offensive? Like they, they both they both sit back and and crack open a beer, you know, after a hard day of work, and they're talking about being backups. And then Frank Reich gets to talk about the time that he got to the Super Bowl. Yeah, Nick Foles is a member of that club, though. Nick Foles, lifetime backup as well. At least he has a coaching staff that can relate to him. It's probably a good place to start. Unbelievable. I, I'm not too optimistic about this. I feel like there are too many good teams remaining, even if you consider the flaws they have for Philly to walk in with a backup quarterback and be favored against a few of these people. I think that them playing New Orleans, uh, New Orleans is a better team than them. I think yep. they would have a hard time with Atlanta at this point. I, I like the rest of Philly's roster, but I just think that Wentz is playing so well. And Wentz was doing stuff that Nick Foles just can't do. And that's my problem. It, this isn't a plug and play situation. The running game is very good for the Eagles. Their offensive line is still very good. They have weapons. Their defense is very good. But what Wentz was doing in extending plays and just kind of negating what happened on the left side of the offensive line at times, I feel like the cracks in this team are going to show up more with Foles and we're going to remember that they weren't a perfect team with Wentz. So he was able to mask a lot of the stuff that made them imperfect. Wentz. Wentz was sort of a light, a very light version of Aaron Rodgers. When we talk about just a quarterback who's so good, they can, they can mask anything. And, and the interesting thing of this year is that the Eagles roster is significantly better than the Packers roster. Oh, absolutely. Um, Right. And so I was there on Sunday. I was at the LA Coliseum and there were a couple of things that struck me. Number one, Doug Peterson tried to put a very, very happy spin on this because they had clinched the NFC East and You know, he actually used the term jubilation about the team. And I don't know what was going on there. Um, I mean, like, you know, I think that I saw a tweet yesterday that one of the beat writers basically said that the team was trying to compare this to, you know, a Darren Sproles injury or a Jason Peters injury. And I understand the significance and sort of the next man up mentality, but at some point it's, it's not next man up. Um, and so what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that, so Peterson's talking about jubilation. I was, I saw those players. I talked to those players. Um, they weren't jubilant at all. Yeah. Um, there, there was no, and, and there was seemingly a disconnect. And I think if the Eagles coaching staff tries to approach this as n- nothing is wrong, 
um, that's the wrong approach because the, the, the players were devastated because they, by the way, just for, I'm not saying anything about Nick Foles. I'm sure Nick Foles is a popular guy, but they were in love with Carson Wentz. Carson yes. Wentz of the 53 players on that team, the 52 players who were not Carson Wentz were in love with Carson Wentz. And I think you, you really, there could be some weird weeks ahead just emotionally for them. Um, that, that At I this think point in the season, it's devastating to lose your quarterback. <laughs> I mean, this isn't week six. This is, we feel like we're the best team in the league. We're headed to the Super Bowl. And then when it's a fully formed idea, it's just suddenly taken away from you. Moving on to more NFL talk, we have a clip from the Bill Simmons podcast, where Bill was joined by his father and Kevin Clark to talk about the upcoming matchup between the New England Patriots and Pittsburgh Steelers. One of the things about the Steelers that should concern you guys is the Steelers are vaguely Belichick proof in the sense that Belichick's going to take away what the Steelers do best. Maybe that's Antonio Brown. He sells out to stop Antonio Brown, but then you still have Le'Veon Bell, you still have Martavis Bryant, you still have Juju. And so that should worry Patriots fans a lot. Just the fact that how many options they have once they take Brown away. I think Belichick will, will, and he did it last year, will sell out to stop Brown and if Brown can break through that and get 150 and two touchdowns, he's the MVP. If he gets 42 yards, so you think we double him. I, I think he might. And then I think that, but that, then that determines, I think, because it's a narrative award. I think that will determine whether or not he's going to be the front runner of the MVP. Come one, come, see the way, come the way we played him. I'm going to say two years ago, early in the season, was we put Butler on him yeah. single and let him get his stats. Yeah, and they shut down Bell. Or right. tried to. And they were just like, all right, Brown, you're getting 11 catches for 150 yards. Right. And Butler actually played great against him. He was still making catches. But it gets back I don't know to, if he can double Brown. I'm not, I don't know. He's, I'm, he's so shifty. I know that. I'm more worried about, I I'm, I give him his stats. I'm more, Bell, if Bell has a good game, then we're done. Right. Right. And I think, I think that in a weird way, Bell and Brown have switched the places far as significance in that offense. I think, yeah. I think two years ago, Bell was the unquestioned. And, and even last year, Bell was most talented player. Bell is averaging 3.9 yards per carry at this point. I know his, his value in the passing game cannot be uh, overstated, but I mean, I, I do, Brown is the guy, but don't can, you think he's averaging 3.9 because Roethlisberger has been so up and down this year. Teams are like, yeah, beat us. Yeah, no, They're I almost I, giving him the board. I, I do think there's part of that, but I just, I mean, Antonio Brown is a transcendent player. And I, I think Sunday, I think he's going to end up being the MVP. I think they're going to double him. I think they're going to probably put a uh, safety over him. But people forget that when we did that last year, Bell went out in the first quarter. Yeah, right. And it seems like nobody remembers that Bell was not a factor only because he wasn't playing. Uh, I think we lucked out last year. Pat's favored by three. Who do you pick? Ooh. Pat's favored by three doesn't. I, I can't understand that line. Um, it's we beat I would, the Steelers all the time. I would never. That's, pick that's a, why that's. I would line. never pick against the Pats. Pats on a back-to-back loss potentially, which they never lose back-to-back. I just hope Vinoy plays. I hope Flowers plays, um, and I hope that whatever scheme he comes up with to stop Brown, I'm willing to do that and see if Rothsberger can go with his other targets. I predict that the line will end up at Pats by two and a half. This does not feel like a three-point game. Who do you like, Hef? Patriots. Patriots, no matter three or two and a half. Grant coming back. Yeah. By the Tiger. 
I I think I think Patriots three is fine. There's a chance we've seen Belichick do this a million times over the years. So sometimes he does the Milton Burrow pulls just yep. enough out to win when he has another big game coming. And in that Miami game, it seemed like they were trying to sneak by. Mm. Brady was getting rid of the ball over over getting hit over and over again, which either means he's hurt or he just wanted to get through the game. And it was like they were just kind of trying to sneak it out. Yeah. Which makes me think they saved some stuff for this week. There was no chicanery last week. Next up, the former number one college basketball team in the country, Duke University, lost their ranking due to a loss to Boston College last weekend. And Mark Titus and Tate Fraser have the takes you need on One Shining Podcast. Check it out. Wow. Congratulations to the Blue Devils, uh, the number one team in the country. They fall in Chestnut Hill uh, to Kai Bowman and Jerome Robinson. And those two guys, for people that do not know, grew up North Carolina fans from the great state of North Carolina, <laughs> and they get redemption. I mean, if you told those kids, Kai Bowman committed to play football at North Carolina, decided to bet on himself to go play basketball, and then he puts up almost a triple-double, 30-10-9 and yeah. on the Blue Devils, gets a big win. It was a beautiful Saturday to wake up. The first game in the ACC, the Blue Devils go down. Now they're last in the ACC. And Boston College, I mean, are they the best team in the ACC right now? They are. That's what it says. I can't believe you haven't said it yet. Uh, Boston College listens to the pod. They come out of the gate. And what do they do, Tate? What do they do to slow down the Blue Devils? Go ahead, say it. You can brag. Double Bagley. They double Bagley. Just double the man. <laughs> sometimes you need two hands on your bag, and sometimes you need to double Bagley. <laughs> they, and that's what they did. Boston it was College so beautiful. doubles Bagley. They go zone, which um, isn't quite doubling Bagley, but it's kind of the same thing. Like you just kind of pack the just paint. Just pack the zone. Just yeah. Just Tate may have been right. It, it's, I'm, I'm I'm flustered right now because Tate may have been right. I'm having so much fun. It's been a great college basketball season. We've been doing this good guy, bad guy segment, which you guys, uh, we, we enjoy everyone reaching out to us and letting us know how they feel about each one that we pick. But, uh, you know, looking at what Duke went through this weekend, I mean, it was just tough. I know that they were upset. Grayson Allen, I called him the Kira Sedgwick of the season. I thought he was the closer. Turns out you take that C away, he's just the loser. And he doesn't score any points down the stretch. I, I thought he was their guy. I thought that's what he was supposed to do. Uh, Trey Duvall took some ill-advised shots down the stretch, some threes. This guy shoots 17% from three. Maybe drive, maybe pass it to Bagley. Does he really? He's only shooting like 17%. Yeah, and then when he threw it in the paint, uh, Bagley got doubled and he threw the ball away for some bad turnovers. Yeah. We should say that the main stretch of this game was Duke was up uh, four points. They go down. They, this is like three minutes left to go in the game. Trey Duvall takes a, I would say, self, a Jason Tatum shot. Questionable. A Jason best, Tatum yeah. shot, which is like, it, it is my time. I am the leader of this right. team. He doesn't throw it to Bagley. Uh, he misses uh, Jerome Robinson, who goes five for five from three, hits a three, cuts it to one, and then he comes down and hits another three to take the two-point lead, and they ride this thing out. Uh, I just can't it, it was one of the most fun Boston College wins I've seen in a long time. And the last time I had fun watching Boston College was when Tyrese Rice put up 46 on Carolina. So, I, congrats to Boston I College. I think the last time I cared about Boston College was Jared Dudley era, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a long way away. Yes, um, that's like 2006. Yeah, so, that yeah, it was... Duke was 8 for 30 from the three-point line. Uh, Boston College was 15 for 26. So... W- is I I mean this was obviously a, a case of of Duke losing. I think I think more people are more interested in Duke losing than than treating Boston College seriously as a um, ACC contender or anything like that. So I'm going to focus my commentary more on the Duke. Like cool Boston College, they had they had three dudes. That, it was basically like a three man show. Their, their guards were hitting all the threes and everything. Yeah, we should say I, I didn't bring but, up Chapman, but he was the other guy that had 22. Um, but I'm more you know me. 
you know you. We're more interested in Duke. Let's, let's just be honest. We're Titus, more interested you love in Duke. Duke. I, I do love Duke. So I, I want to. I, the the question now becomes: Is this cause for concern for Duke moving forward? And my answer is no. Um, they need to fix these things. They're they're terrible defensively, but they've been terrible all season. This is they've been terrible for years defensively. Like at this in in November and December and half of January. This is their mo with the one and done era. This is by the way, this is everyone's mo in the one and done era. Like the only one and done team that was great defensively was Kentucky in 2012 because they had Anthony Davis and Kentucky in 2015 because they had seven seven footers. I mean, who else? Who else has like had a team full of one and done guys? I'm I'm sure there's maybe there's probably one other Kentucky team that was good that I'm forgetting, but I don't. It feels but not like, really. It feels like this is like this is the same problem Arizona's having is that DeAndre Ayton doesn't know what he's doing out there defensively. Like he just he has the physical tools, but he doesn't know how to guard ball screens. Um, and that's Duke. They just don't know how to communicate. They did, but they this is exactly what happened to them in 2015. They sucked. They played Miami. They got blown out in my, against Miami in January. Then they started to play some better defense. They hit the ground running and when the state tournament came around. They locked dudes up. Justice Winslow was great. I sort of think that's going to happen again here. I, I hate to say it, Tate. I'm sorry, but... Uh, there's no, no apology is, necessary. I will say this about this Duke team. I mean, th- there's the two sides of this. So Kay comes after the game, and he's contrite. He comes out. He says, we knew we were playing one of the best backcourts in the ACC. And they showed themselves today. They, they they played their hand perfectly. That's what he says. But what he's really saying is what in the you-know-what is going on with this team. He's going to run them to death in practice. Yep. They're going to figure this stuff out. And that's what you mean by that. Like, Kay is now, he has everything he needs to really light a, right. light a fire under their ass and, and just make that's them what run these up coaches, and down. These coaches yeah. love, that's what, yeah, that's what college basketball is awesome. College football, you lose like this, your season's over. College basketball, you almost strategically lose like this. Mm-hmm. So then now Kay can go to the locker room and be like, see, I told you guys you're not shit, and you just lost to Boston College. Now, Grayson, get here. Come here, Grayson. <laughs> <laughs> All right, switching to the NBA. We are not finished with this season yet, but people are already investigating where LeBron may take his talents this offseason. Houston has actually popped up as a potential destination. On the NBA show, Kevin O'Connor and Chris Vernon discuss where he could potentially go next. Did you read Chuck's article yesterday on how LeBron should go to the Rockets? Because I'm thinking, I think LeBron, like everybody's talking about Rockets, but what about the Spurs too? The Spurs feel like they would be a cool place for LeBron. Oh, good grief. He's going to Los Angeles. Isn't that what everybody's always said? He's going to Los Angeles. Like he's, yeah, he's coming to the Clippers. Yeah, That's yeah. what's happening. I, yeah. In your dreams, Isaac. <laughs> well, you know, he's he's big into all that production stuff and whatnot, right? Like he fancies himself as becoming like a, a, a real mogul. And everybody knows he's already got the mansion yeah. out there. Two. He has two of them. Two mansions in LA. Oh, all right. Well, he's got two mansions. You know, he's like getting into, you know, television and movie production. Um, he's already done some acting so far. And so I think that, I think most people have thought, like, I, I that the reason beyond basketball, but the reason that maybe he ends up closing out a career there is that he gets a couple of his buddies to go with him out there. And, uh, like, I mean, he might be able to get Chris. Seriously. Like, what if the Rockets don't, don't know. win? What if the I mean, Rockets It's always a possibility. You can, you, you can never rule anything out, right? Yeah. Charks, Charks laid out a great argument, though, for, for LeBron to Houston. And, and I think, I think if, I, if I were LeBron James, I would do one of two different things. My first choice would be to go to the Lakers now. Right. And to assemble my own super team, bring Paul George, bring DeMarcus Cousins, whoever the superstars are, that that's what would be my first choice. 
but it's not a bad second option to, you know, try to take a pay cut to go to Houston, play with Chris Paul for a season, Dwayne Wade on the league minimum, right? Play there for two or three seasons and then go to the Lakers because the Lakers aren't going to say no to you two to three years from now. You can go there whenever you want. You can go anywhere you want. The most persuasive of that would be that you're joining up one of the great teams instead of going to like the Lakers, Clippers, whatever you're saying, because otherwise just stay in the East. Like, you know what I mean? You're going to, you got to beat one team really that would have a crack at beating you in order to get to the NBA finals. And then once you get to the NBA finals, you never know what can take Mm -hmm. place. But I mean, good grief. If you're going to try to do your own thing with a couple other guys and you've already got, you know, Westbrook, George, and Mello, and and Chris Paul, and James Harden, and Durant, and Curry, and Thompson, and Kawhi, and his crew, and Aldridge, and them over there. Like, why would you want to try to bust through the West? It's simple, man. The, the toughest challenge will bring the greatest reward. And I think if, if you're LeBron James, if you put yourself through that challenge for a higher risk of failure, I think the reward, the reward at the end or other end of that, if you win a championship with the Lakers, if you lead that team back to the top and you dethrone the Warriors dynasty that everybody's saying they're going to win all these titles. If you do that, there is no better argument for you being the greatest player of all time. Right. I think that's the reward at the end of the tunnel by going to the West, whereas in the East, it's going to be the same old argument that a lot of people use against LeBron. Oh, he had an easy path. You know, he never had a play in the West. And you know what? That's a valid argument. I think if you're talking about playoffs, I think that's a valid argument for people to have, even though I still think LeBron potentially when it's all said and done, will be the goat. I think he will be the goat when it's all said and done regardless. But right now, that's a hole in the argument that people fairly use against him. And to beat that is to go West. And I think I think the better way to do it is with the Lakers more so than what latching on with the Rockets. Cause like Charks even said in his article, that's the equivalent of what Durant did going to golden state. So I think that would also be used against LeBron as well. Oh, he just joined us an existing super team. So build your own super team with the Lakers and think about sustainability. When you guys have guys like Ingram and Lonzo on that team, some young guys on that roster adding two or three veterans. I think that could be the way to do it. Bring the Lakers back to the promised land and dethroning the Warriors? Could anything be better? If he came to the Clippers, that would be better. Clipper Isaac just wants him going to the Clippers. Nobody wants to be uh, hey, nobody wants to Isaac. be at the Cl- <laughs> nobody wants to be at the Clippers, Isaac. Come on. But what if he was the first one to break the Clippers curse? What if he's the one who brings the Clippers beyond the second round for the first time in history and maybe win a title? Like, wouldn't that be a big legacy too? Nobody cares about the Clippers, Isaac. (laughs) Okay, we move on from one freakishly talented player to another on the JJ Reddick podcast, where he spoke to Carl Anthony Towns this week about the current crop of uniquely talented big men. If you had a unicorn power rankings... Who's number one? I mean, I think everyone, if you was with JoJo, JoJo definitely is saying himself. I hands down know JoJo will say himself. Uh, and obviously, I already knew that how that was going. Uh, and you know, I'm going to opt 
we're all going to pick ourselves, you know, okay. we all feel that we all could do something special on the court, but right. it's just amazing. Now we're in a league where we have not, we don't have the one unicorn. We have multiple unicorns, you know, the land is full of them. You're not supposed to see unicorns. And, we, and, <laughs> yeah, and right. if you're an NBA fan, you see them yeah. on a nightly yeah. basis. Years ago, you say you never see one. Now you're seeing them everywhere. For, for me, it's, I, I, I got a, no offense, but for me, it's, it's KD. Cause, and I'll tell you why, because his defensively, he's been amazing yes. since he went to Golden State. So that, that's part of it. But like when you really think about his skill set, he does things that no one at his size has ever been able to do before. And to me, I, I said this uh, on one of my podcasts prior, but like to me, he's one of the greatest shooters ever, yes. period. Yes. Like he, he's led the league in scoring four times. He's been an incredible defensive player the last two years. You can take all that stuff away. He will still go down as one of the greatest shooters, period, ever. I think we all know he uses the gifts by God that he was given very well. Like, you know, his shooting ability, he could shoot, but it's very hard to block KD because he's so long and athletic and he jumps so high on his shot by that. It's very hard to even get a chance to get a timing on jumping and blocking the ball in a three point shot. And he makes those difficult shots. It's like a Steph thing, you know, like Steph Curry, you know, they make the difficult shots. You know, you could be right there in his face, guarding tremendously well and he still hits the shot and that's what I think makes KD so special is you know it's just his God-given abilities you know his God-given traits you know his long arms you know his size his his length and like I've always said I've grown up my favorite player in, in the league present was KD and it's always been and I take no disrespect by you saying that at all <laughs> like I think he's I think he's fabulous. I think he's one, you know, I've always been excited going against him and always watching him play because he's just one of those players, you know, you never know, no matter how much the league changes that we may ever see again, you know, and Giannis is an amazing player and the way he does with his length is crazy, but KD and his shooting ability is second to none with his size. And it's, uh, it's amazing what he's been able to do. Uh, we were talking about like Porzingis and, and you and KD and, and even Jojo, just the ability to shoot at that size. And then you have like Giannis and Ben who Ben doesn't, I don't think he takes a shot outside the paint, but he gets, he gets where he wants to go at all times. Like the thing I said, everyone, uh, when they talked to me about Ben, when he got drafted, they said, do you think Ben will be good? I said, listen, I don't think you're going to need a jump shot when you can get in the paint whenever you want. So, <laughs> so everyone has their own traits and they have their own special abilities. You know, it's like a video game. You know, everyone has their little trait and their special abilities. Remember like old school, sure. like 2K has their little badges and yeah. stuff like that. I was going to say Street Fighter, but Street yeah. Fighter. <laughs> yeah. But you know, everyone has like, that's a, a yeah. perfect example. Everyone has their little special trait and their special ability. And you know, Ben just gets in the paint, you know, his size and uh, his ability to get in the paint is, is amazing, especially for a rookie. Giannis has his length and his speed and the size at that. And obviously for how tall me, Jojo and Porzingis are for, for us to be able to do what we do is, you know, obviously unheard of. And KD, you know, they lie by his size. He's much taller in person. And, and then for him to be able to really be the one that's unheard of. It's, it's interesting because when you, when you think of a unicorn, it evokes like just like rainbow colors and like a white horse and like <laughs> these really like happy thoughts, but really unicorns in the sense of an NBA unicorn, you guys are more like uh mortal combat and yeah. you each have your own finishing move. Yeah. It's a little more you know aggressive than a regular unicorn yeah, is, you right, know, right. you know, unicorns, they walk around and they appeal to little girls and stuff. And we're using the horn actually to try to kill each other most of the time so it's pretty fun 
Our next clip in the roundup comes from Ringer FC. The round of 16 matchups for the UEFA Champions League were announced on Monday, and Micah Peters, Donnie Kwok, and Ryan O'Hanlon discuss who had the best and worst draws. Check it out. Who won and who lost the Champions League draw? I think City definitively won the Champions League draw. They they have they got Basel right. Oh well, no, England won the Champions League draw. Yeah, for the most honestly. part, I would probably agree with that. Yeah, five English sides in the knockout rounds of the Champions League for the first time ever. Well, for the you know for the first time ever, you know, tempering that with the with the knowledge that uh, UEFA only allowed more than two sides per nation uh, yeah. in the 2000 season. Mm-hmm. Um. But, I mean, there was, I mean, like, they got, they. it's basically like England has been in decline since the top four basically became a top six, right? Yeah. And yep. I think the closest they ever got to, well, I mean, like, they almost did four sides in the knockout stages in 06, but Everton lost to, like, Villarreal, I think. Yeah, almost five because uh, Liverpool won and didn't finish top four, so there had to be a rule uh, instituted. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. God, Everton finished top four that year. <laughs> um, who do you think, Donnie? Winner or who loser? Won, who won and lost? I mean, I think Chelsea drew Barcelona, uh, which could be a problem. But even beyond who they drew, because Spurs got Juventus, mm-hmm. who I think they can beat, but. I was just reading here the uh, we were talking about picture fi- pic- fixture <laughs> pileups for the last couple of weeks. You get a load of this Spurs in the span of two weeks, United, Liverpool away, Arsenal, and both legs of the Juventus tie. That's and tough. then Chelsea in the span of three weeks, Barca twice, United away, and Man City. So that's going to be problematic. And it's you know I guess if the league is lost as we've been saying, maybe they'll, uh, uh, Poch and, and uh, Conte will devote all of their attention and resources to, to winning these uh, knockout games. But uh, Chelsea, I think, is the big loser. I think the winner is us, soccer lovers. These are all really good matchups, I think, most of them. And uh, it's going to be some good games. That's such a great way to look at it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to quickly point out, I think winner is Bayern Munich, who finished second in their group, but... Um, they have to Some, face Ryan Babel. Somehow drew Besiktas. Uh, they're more winners because they get to share a field with Babel and Ricardo <laughs> Quaresma. Um, and meanwhile, PSG won their group with Bayern Munich, and PSG has to play Real Madrid. <laughs> so, <laughs> man, might, might not PSG have wanted to win that first game <laughs> in, the, in the last sixteen. Just imagine. I, I'm simultaneously extremely excited and dreading. Uh, <laughs> to see what the aftermath of that would be. All right, in our last clip for this week, we have David Shoemaker, Mike Lawrence, and Dave Schilling talking about the build-up for the upcoming New Japan Pro Wrestling event, Wrestle Kingdom 12. They discuss the main event match between Chris Jericho and Kenny Omega in this clip from The Masked Man Show. Now, I want to get your guys' opinion on this. My quick take is I'm a little bit it's a, I'm a little bit mind-effed by the whole thing because you can't really break down, you can't really pinpoint what they're doing that's so much better than they would than it would be if it was in WWE. It's just more of like WWE, more of like a soft-focused lens version of it or something. But all of that is to say this was like the weirdly, weirdly the most like vital, exciting thing that's happened, uh, you know, 
and clips on the internet in the wrestling internet in a while. What, do you, what, what was your take, Dave? Well, I think simply it just felt more real. Uh, yeah. you, you know, you can you can overestimate the the benefit of getting color in a situation like this, but I think that's it's it, you can't overestimate it really. You can say you can, but you can't because that gives you a, a visual. It gives you a feeling. It's a surprise to see it because it's so rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, just you know, the way that they did the angle was so simple. Yeah, it was. Uh, it didn't have to have like a twenty minute promo before it. It didn't have to have you know, a bunch of other people running in. The Bucks come in late with the baseball bat and that ends it. And, you know, their uh, rationales for why they didn't come out because they had been in a match or whatever the re- the reason was. But it didn't have the kind of bells and whistles. It didn't have the commercial break that's got to come right before, right after. It didn't, it, it was not WWE's format, so it felt different. It felt better. And just to be clear, I'm sure most people listening to this, probably everyone has seen these clips, but there, there's two different, there were two different moments. Um, there, have there been three, or is it the third one? Just I'm thinking of Jericho talking about it. But there was Jericho appeared in the ring when Kenny Omega was was there, surprised him, beat him up, got color, uh, hit him with the belt. Um, and then there, su- subsequently, there was a Chris Jericho press conference that Kenny Omega invaded. Yeah, Mike, what was your uh, what, what, what's your take on this whole thing? I mean, my thing, like with with you know the use of uh, blood, is that I don't think that's what makes it better because I completely understand why WWE doesn't do it, and so I don't think you need that to make things better. And after, I mean, let's just say after Benoit and all these other horrible tragedies and stuff and just the foreheads in HD watching Ric Flair's <laughs> 30 for 30, I'm okay. I, I get it. Maybe in 2017, we don't use razor blades against our foreheads anymore and, you know, hit each other with chairs and stuff. So, like, I don't want to think that that's why it was great. I think the reason why it was great is that it brought a, a torship back to wrestling mm. it's that idea that and I, and I think Chris Jericho is great at this and you know even when he's in the handcuffed land of WWE it's just his programs feel different because he's a driving force in them yes and and I think you know you have one of the best minds of all time in Jericho with one of the best minds now in Omega I think Omega is not getting enough credit in all this mm-hmm. I think this is the thing they've been doing together since the beginning with the tweets and like if you look at the feud from its inception and you know with social media and then like that he is in Japan like I guess I think I think a part of what makes it great is like no one's taking pictures of him in you know the Tokyo airport the way they do every time there's a rumble or a survivor series where you know sure. we can't help but look at the spoilers but the spoilers often do really spoil the product oh yeah yeah i don't think that it's specifically the blood that does it. I think the blood is helpful. I think the blood yeah. uh, creates a better visual, but I, I think it does. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right though, that a lot of it is that it's existing not only in the, the world of the television uh, in Japan, but also they're trying to kayfabe as much as they can on social media on podcasts. They're pushing it in a different way where it's not like, eh, this is just a show. Yeah. This is just a silly show. And, you know, Sasha Banks or, 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 uh, Gals and Anderson or whoever are like in a big feud with somebody, but they're also tweeting from Toys R Us, you know? Yeah. Well, it's like, yeah. 
I think the second best Jericho angle this year would be, you know, the friendship stuff with Owens. And that it's had like, no blood. Yeah. And, and I think it still worked. But then the problem, too, is that with, you know, Marvel is like this. There's such a formula that, you know, like when you look at like uh, Ragnarok, the way that Taika was able to infuse himself as a director into this stale formula. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what they're doing, where it's like, if you did this on, you know, WWE, you know, they have to have the rematch. They have to have tags with other guys leading up to it. And, you know, Kenny Omega has to do guest commentary on a Jericho match. And it's like cost him a title. That's it. I I think I think when it comes down to it, uh, I I totally agree with everything you both you both said. Um, It's the expectations of WWE. It's like when as soon as anything exciting happens, we can project out the next eight weeks of content and you're going to be 90 percent right. Yeah. But also, I think there's something in just the very literal production values um, that it's all WWE's almost gotten it's it's almost just it's too clean. It's too pretty. It's too it's too much of a certain thing. There was the, 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 the when I saw that first clip of Jericho's run in, it almost felt like washed out. You know, it felt like when you're looking at like a you know, UFC highlight reel on YouTube where everything's black and white except the blood, you know? I mean, it really, for the blood really popped in a way that it it just feels like Hollywood blood in, in WWE, even though it's real when we see it, right? Uh, everything about this angle felt to me like, and we need a sound drop for whenever I bring up Memphis wrestling, but it felt like the, it felt like the regional wrestling that I grew up with, right? I mean, it was, the run-in was, was uh straightforward i mean it was very it was just a straight up like i'm gonna beat you down there was no there was no necessity to like balance it out with comedy like was the case with the jericho owens uh storyline i think when you're working in the constraints of wwe like you're saying you kind of have to like go to extremes to sort of you have to go to one extreme to sort of like i earn the other extreme Okay, that is the roundup for this week. You can find the full-length versions of all these podcasts and subscribe at theringer.com slash podcasts.